This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Both Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton and Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump have talked extensively about U.S. job security and job creation on the campaign trail. We need new jobs, good jobs with rising incomes. I want us to invest in you. I want us to invest in your future. We have to renegotiate our trade deals and we have to stop these countries from stealing our companies and our jobs. You may not think of the state's outdoor recreation industry as a large job creator. However, the sector supports 125,000 workers, earning $4.2 billion annually. Luis Benitez is director of Colorado's Outdoor Recreation Industry Office. He joins me here in the studio. And on the phone from Bogosa Springs is Dan English, CEO and founder of Vormi, a Colorado-based outdoor clothing company. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Uh, Luis, let's begin with you. Uh, Colorado's Outdoor Recreation Industry Office is only about 15 months old. Uh, Tell us why it was created by Governor Hickenlooper. You know, it's interesting. The statistics that you quoted um, actually reference wages and salaries um, within the state. But if you look at it through the lens of consumer spending, um, we're a little over $13 billion in consumer spending. So, you know, if you're looking at it through that lens, ultimately one of the reasons why my office was created was that it's, it's just really to protect and oversee a significant portion of our state's economy. So um, ultimately, any other driver for our economy, like ag, tech, bio, aerospace, um, the outdoor industry represents a significant component of our economy. But then I think also um, a large portion of our natural resources that drive that economy. So, you know, one of the things that I think people tend to forget is ultimately the connector point for this is that, you know, we have these natural resources that provide a source of inspiration that drive the industry that provides a lot of jobs and a lot of revenue to our state. Dan, did your company move here because of the inspirational mountains and outdoor recreation activities, or was it something else? No, that's exactly right. And as Lewis just pointed out, the connecting point to us was it, it, we found it really odd over you know decades where these major outdoor brands were located on uh, various coasts and often in big you know urban areas and a long ways from the playgrounds that they were building clothes for or gear for, <clears throat> and so. You know, we wanted to locate in Colorado. Uh, we love to play in Colorado. We live here. And we thought, why not kind of buck the trend, if you will, and put together a high-tech apparel company uh, in rural Colorado where we can test gear right outside of our back doors. We have a different perspective. Uh, you know, there's an old saying sometimes to, to get it, um, a different perspective on life. You have to get out of your neighborhood. And so uh, locating in, in a Colorado small town in the, in the mountains of Colorado has been really a key to our success. So the success was, you know, finding those small communities to essentially embed in as opposed to, let's say, working along Colorado's front range? It is, exactly. You know, we found that uh, while there are some obvious challenges, and, and, and sometimes the bigger cities, you know, obviously are easier from a technology point of view and, and connectivity and transportation and those type of things, uh, but the culture and, and, and finding folks that really want to work with their hands. You know, at Vormi, we like to, to, to think of ourselves as the, the microbrew of apparel, where we're building products, everything in the United States, a lot of it in Colorado. We're sourcing all of our components in, in the United States. And we started that from day one, and we've been very committed to domestic sourcing. And so, you know, from our point of view, it's really about being able to roll up your sleeves 
dive in, take a different perspective on things that we're trying to accomplish, and, and living in rural communities has helped us, you know, really engage with that type of, you know, hands-on type attitude. Luis, how important is collaboration between companies and the state in this sector in terms of job creation and retention? Uh, it's incredibly important. I think, you know, when you look at how to bring some of these entities together, 90% of what I do is coalition building. Yes, obviously, my office focuses on a couple of different things, um, like economic development, like conservation and stewardship. But when it comes to education and workforce training, you know, Dan really brings up an interesting point. A lot of people have made this choice within the industry of, of kind of an either-or. I'm either going to be in the front range attached to the urban corridor um, where I could potentially recruit a deeper level of talent, or I'm going to be located in a small rural mountain community where I can have that quality of life connected to the products that I design um, and build. And what we're trying to propose is uh, that ultimately you can have both. And I think the way that you get there is understanding what your resources are, understanding how to effectively move that pipeline around. Because nine times out of 10, people that are located here also want what Dan has. And, and so trying to find a way to connect that. And now you have Colorado Mountain College coming up with a cut and sew certificate. So you're closing the loop on that potential ecosystem, which is really a networked web of both small rural communities like Rifle, like Pagosa Springs, but then bringing in um, Colorado Mountain College, which would include their headquarters in Glenwood Springs to really figure this out. And then also understanding how to connect the whole web, which involves us down here in Denver. Dan, what are some of the roadblocks here? Yeah, it's, you know, as Lewis just mentioned, you know, the challenge in rural communities is to is to be able to obtain um, the skill sets that we need. You know, we're moving into a very technical phase of our business uh, life cycle, or we're continuing to drive innovation. We plan to invest and build a, a newer innovation center here in Pagosa Springs, really focused on new technologies in the fabric and textile world across the board. And so that means for the most part, we're going to have to bring in a lot of new skill sets for that. So that's been a challenge, uh, certainly, is to relocate people from um, from big cities that have the skill sets we're looking for to, you know, to live in a small rural town. You know, small towns are not for everyone, um, but so far, everyone that's moved here uh, from big cities, once they've got adjusted to it, they love it. Yeah, Dan brings up a really great point and something that we often um, focus on, at least in my world. You know, the traditional definition of economic development, if I take you and your company and your employees and move you from this state to this state, and chances are in our industry, you're going to be moving from a small rural community to a similar size rural community or a larger town like Denver. Ultimately, our opinion is that it does nothing to grow net new jobs and deepen innovation. All I've done is take revenue and jobs from one small town and move it to another. So if you start to think a little bit bigger and a little bit broader and really try to understand the ecosystem that defines the outdoor industry, what you're really talking about, at least in our, on our side of the country, is the Intermountain West. So what we're trying to do is ultimately exactly what Dan said, make sure the ecosystem is strong, that the network is connected, and then get out of the way to make sure absolutely everything that people need, um, they have to be successful, but then also to help them understand you know, the potential and the possibility. Take Vormi, for instance, in Pagosa Springs. And I know Dan's been able to recruit people from New York, LA, major urban corridors. Um, wouldn't it be great to also have an opportunity to have an office space here in Denver to access some of that thought leadership. So for us here in Colorado, it's less about the shell game of moving companies from state to state. And it's much more about, you know, if you're in the outdoor industry and you're focused on thought leadership and innovation, some part of your organization, you're going to want to have that here in Colorado. 
And your outdoor recreation industry office is kind of unique across the country. There aren't too many offices like this across the United States. There isn't, but I would I would say that momentum is building. Right now, there are three um, official positions, Utah, Colorado, and Washington State. But we just held a symposium in Jackson Hole, um, of all places, and 11 states showed up um, professing interest in this office and what it could stand for. And ultimately, again, this is a reflection that for those 11 states, a significant portion of both their economy economy, their health and wellness, and their conservation and stewardship are driven, almost a value proposition is driven by the outdoor industry. So it makes perfect sense that these states are now starting to look at this construct and see if it fits. You know, I think this model moving forward is is the fact that, you know, we can have distributed manufacturing, no matter, even if you're building apparel uh, products or wakeboards, doesn't really matter. But this this notion of distributed manufacturing in, in, in across the United States um, it's a model of the blueprint of manufacturing. The days are gone of building huge manufacturing uh, uh, shops with hundreds of people located in one spot. You know, the world's too—I mean, it, the world's too small now to be able to do that. You don't need to do that. And and so this this model that we have going on in Colorado with this distributed a network of of companies of like-minded business owners is really the blueprint we believe of moving forward across the United States. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Luis Benitez, director of Colorado's new outdoor recreation industry office, and Dan English, CEO and founder of Vormi, a Colorado-based outdoor clothing company, about how Colorado's recreation industry is creating and keeping jobs in the U.S. Dan, what if demand for your product really grows? How do you account for that in this type of model? Yeah, it's a great question, and we, you know, it's it's a it's a question we we struggle with every day. Uh, what we do is we focus on bringing on additional capacity. You know, one of the challenges and the easiest path is to try to to bring more work to an existing small factory, if you will, um, and you know, and and they struggle with that. Um, you know, trying to find more. More skilled labor in a small town is very challenging, as we've talked. And so instead, we really try to expand the footprint of small uh, manufacturing locations. For example, if I have a dozen, you know, 10-person shops, that's 120 people sewing versus trying to keep it at six six locations and add more people to that location. Rarely does that work. And so, and so one of the quests that we're on all the time is to work with you know, um, entities like CSU in their textile um, uh, school and trying to bring uh, new skill sets, you know, new uh, degree uh, folks into areas that we can expand the footprint of the different type of manufacturing locations. Yeah, I would I would agree with that and say that academia, um, obviously, there's a reason why my office focuses, one of the tenants we focus on is education and workforce training. Because to Dan's point, if we really are talking about a new economy, if you will, we really have to understand the, the portion of academia that will help drive that $13 billion economy. So Dan mentioned CSU. Um, they're starting a $3 million capital campaign for a brand new design center to, to really talk about advanced manufacturing and what that could or should be. We mentioned college. Colorado Mountain College earlier with their cut and sew certificate. That's um, 11 campuses for 30,000 students all over Colorado. So you really have to understand um, what academia's role is in this process. Are these students uh, getting credit? Are they getting paid? How are they actually entering into this workforce? It seems to me there is a demand for this type of labor. Uh, How quickly is that getting into the pipeline? 
You know, from a Vormi point of view, we fired um, a person directly from CSU, um, and now she has moved into a you know a senior position of Vormi. Uh, she's young, energetic, uh, and and really wants to learn. So it's it's been fun to see youth being brought in, and and with their energies and their ability to really take information and turn it faster is, is great. So, so we're excited about, you know, um, college folks coming out and coming right into their workforce. And, and, you know, typically in the past, it's been, you know, a 10-year, 20-year seamstress is the person you want to hire, and, and, and certainly we want to do that as well. Uh, but these uh, college grads or these um, kids coming out of, of colleges, you know, that's been focused on design school and, and really more importantly for me, it's not just design school. It's really hands-on. Can they sew? Do they know how to set a zipper? Very basic things like that, which I think this generation needs to get more hands-on details versus all this computer stuff. So for this model to work, at least in terms of your business, you desperately need those younger uh, generation of workers who may not be used to making things with their hands. Yeah, you know, and I would I would say that having Dan mentioned college students, I think ultimately the outdoor industry has always always sort of experienced this organic mentorship and leadership where you have people that would learn trades and skills because they would cobble together their years based on seasons. So you'd work for a ski mountain, then you could maybe do a little cut and sew work, then you could be a river guide. And so you had a, a very mixed bag of, of tricks. But then ultimately where that would lead you is a way to cobble your year together so you could pay the bills and stay in a place that you love. And I think the exciting tipping point now, instead of seeing people, which we have for a really long time, say, well, I went to school and I got an English literature degree, but I really wanted to work for that bike company. Or I got it, my major was in art history, but all I wanted to do was work for that ski shop. Now you're actually finding degrees that are skill set specific to the outdoor industry. You can get a degree in ski and snowboard shaping. You can get a degree in trail building. Hopefully you'll be able to get a degree um, to the level of advanced manufacturing and cut and sew that Dan is um, talking about and bike bending for mountain bike creation. And now factor in e-bikes, pedal assist e-bikes, that's battery technology, that's drivetrain technology. So you have all these different components that instead of academia saying, well, you're going to have to go do something traditional because we don't have anything for you. I think what we're finding is academia is starting to pay attention now and, and be a little bit more, more nimble than in years past and say, you know what, there actually is a program where you can get a skill set and not necessarily just a four-year bachelor's degree. We're also talking about associate-level degrees, certificate programs, and then my argument would also be where are things like the executive MBA focused specifically on the outdoor industry? How do we cultivate the succession planning for our leadership for all of these amazing companies? Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for having us. Luis Benitez is director of Colorado's new Outdoor Recreation Industry Office. Dan English is CEO and founder of Vormi, a Colorado-based outdoor clothing company. We spoke about how Colorado's recreation industry is creating and keeping jobs here in Colorado. Up next, telling a veteran's story through dance. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. When Army Specialist Todd Billsborough returned from Iraq in 2006, he entered what he calls the darkest period of his life. He was depressed, battled with alcohol addiction, and had nightmares about the war. His experience inspired a new show called Alone with Todd from the experimental Denver dance company Control Group Productions. Billsborough composed the score. He studied music at Naropa University in Boulder. Todd, welcome. Hi. Thanks so much for having me on. 
You grew up in Highlands Ranch, a suburb south of Denver, in a middle-class family. Yes. What drove you to join the Army in your early 20s? I was 22, and I had just gotten my degree, an associate's degree in computer programming. This was in 2002. Mm -hmm. The dot-com crash had just happened, and I was not having a lot of luck finding work. And I was not happy with how my life was going, and I didn't see... A, a future for myself. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know who I wanted to be. And with the with the army, they were very actively recruiting because we had just started a, a second war. Um, I'm sorry, this was in 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, so I saw an opportunity to to take a radically different direction in my life to become a different person. So. I enlisted. You signed up for the army and and you went for special ops. I did, yes. And you were eventually deployed to Iraq in 2005 where you spent 14 months. Mm -hmm. Uh, What were some of your duties over there? Uh, I was part of a psychological operations team which was tasked with interfacing with the local civilian population, uh, going out with the infantry on missions to uh, distribute information about allied operations um, and to to help the local civilians – get on the side of the allies and to demoralize the enemy. So was it propaganda in a sense? I don't know if I'd call it that. Um, but it's I, – I think of it as just inf- information operations. And you did suffer some brain trauma uh, during your deployment. Isn't that right? Well, I was diagnosed with mild traumatic brain injury when I returned because I was – as many of us were uh, in close proximity to – Many very large explosions, which can have a concussive effect. So uh, that was – when I got back, I was having numerous symptoms that could be attributed either to mild traumatic injury, mild traumatic brain injury or PTSD or both. And so that was part of my di- diagnosis. Um, as to what of my experience is attributable to mild traumatic brain injury versus PTSD – Kind of hard to say, but that was part of my diagnosis. And you returned home and you've said it was the darkest period of your life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The first three months was a bit of a honeymoon period, but already I was starting to uh, drink heavily to try and deal with the – with the with the emotions and the nightmares that I was beginning to experience. And then by the winter of 2006, I was in really bad shape. I was – Drinking very heavily every night and I was working a job as a manager for a security company. It was an after-hours job. So I was driving around the city at night in the most miserable winter I can experience. It was very – it was a very cold winter. We received a lot of snow and I was either drunk or hungover all the time and just not functioning very well and not feeling very good. Did you ever dream of Iraq or – Yeah, all the time. Um, The – the dreams I had were as, – as I went on became less literal experiences of the events and became more and more distorted into uh, some of the nightmare images that I experienced while I was in Iraq. Uh, we were taking uh, malaria drugs called mefloquine and that was causing some very vivid nightmares while I was in Iraq um, that started creeping its way both into my into my dreams when I was back and into my memories of the experience. Was there a, a turning point uh, that helped you get your life back on track? Was there a rock bottom? I 
I don't even really remember rock bottom. I don't really remember 2007 at all. At all. That entire year is a blur for me. Uh, 2008, um, I decided to stop drinking and it took me several, several attempts before I was finally successful at that. And that was the real turning point. Once I got clear of alcohol, I was able to get back my, get my life back on track and figure out that I wanted to go back to school and to study music. And music was your passion early on, I I was told. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I started playing music in elementary school and uh, sort of started to feel towards the end of my high school career that as much as I loved it, it wasn't something that I was going to be able to do for a living. So I started looking for other options. When I got back and when I started getting my head clear from, from the alcohol a little bit, I I realized that it was really the only thing I could see myself doing. And I had I had the GI Bill and I was looking into Naropa University and it seemed seemed like a good option so I went back to my passion and uh fortunately it's turned out very well for me. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Todd Billsborough. He composed the music for a new experimental dance production called Alone with Todd. It's about his time in the military and what unfolded after he returned from Iraq in the mid-2000s. The shows, uh, the final shows, are next weekend at Denver's Buntport Theater. In addition to the show being inspired by your experiences, you also compose the score and play it live on stage. Here's a bit from a drum solo. Describe what's happening on stage during this piece. So during this sequence, musically what's going on, obviously you've got me on the drum set, but what you're not hearing as much in this particular segment is that the drum set is is mic'd, and it's running through my laptop, it's running through an effect that is delaying and looping and distorting the sound. So in between these segments where I'm playing the drums, uh, there are segments where I'm letting these loops happen. Um... At the same time, Patrick is doing movement in the space in fairly low lighting conditions. This is part of a series called Dances Made to be Viewed in the Dark. And that's Patrick Mueller, correct? Yeah, Patrick Mueller. director of Control Group Productions. He is the director of Control Group and he is the other performer in this production, someone I've been working with for about four years now. And he's doing movement in, in, in the space, which is inspired by discussions that we've had about this material and about my experiences. In terms of creating this production, were how long were the discussions with with Patrick? Did you sit down and have coffee together? Did you you know hunker down with a notebook? How did this come about? Uh, much the latter. There, we got together in the studio as we was as we do regularly for part of our rehearsals at the very beginning of this process, which was I think late August, early September, and Patrick interviewed me in depth for probably a good two hours, three hours maybe, about my life before the Army, about my experiences in training, my experiences in Iraq, and my experiences coming home. Did he come to you with this idea, or did you come to him, or how did that come about? The The title is what came first, because we were going to do the second segment in Dances Made to be Viewed in the Dark, and Patrick wanted it to come from the way we rehearsed together, which is the two of us alone in the studio, Patrick alone with Todd, coming up with ideas. 
But the title and the ideas, the concepts behind exploring darkness that we've been working with in this uh, in this series, um, I wanted to do something that was honest to my experiences of darkness. Mm -hmm. And this is the first thing that came to mind. And at no point did I actually, was I very enthusiastic about this idea. I was very, I mean, I knew right away that artistically this was the right choice to make. And I knew that it would be a good show and it is a good show. At the same time, I was absolutely terrified of having to put myself forward like this. So, but at no point did I think to myself, oh, this is this is not the right thing to do. It was always very clear in my mind that this was the way to go with this show. It was just uh, very reluctant on my part. But you did get out there on stage, and it's – the lighting is such a unique part of this performance. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's dim lighting. It's unconventional lighting. Explain how that's a part of this production. So is, much in our last performance or our last uh, series in Dances Made to be Viewed in the Dark, we are exploring the ways that um, lighting is such an integral part of dance performance. Uh, we are deconstructing that a little and trying to find out what dance can be when you can't see it as well. Sometimes when you can't see it at all. Sometimes when you can just hear it and experience it and in in sensory ways other than we traditionally experience dance performance. Todd, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. Former Army Specialist Todd Billsborough composed the score for a new experimental dance work called Alone with Todd. It's about what came after his return from Iraq. You can see it next weekend at Buntport Theater in Denver. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. After more than two years of relentless campaign ads, stump speeches, and political posturing, voters go to the polls on Tuesday. Joining them could be around 270,000 young Coloradans who are old enough to cast a ballot in a presidential election for the first time. The number comes from the state demographer. 19-year-old Maggie Brynarski is one of those first-timers. She's a junior at the University of Colorado Boulder and submitted her ballot last week. Not ever having voted before, but like talking about it all the time, I felt like I knew what I was doing, uh, which was really, really nice to not go in there and feel like blindsided by anything. So, yeah, I don't know. It was exciting and it was good to feel like I was, you know, making a change. And she's not alone. Colorado is the only state where tallies of early votes show that the number of voters aged 18 to 29 has actually increased compared to 2012. With that in mind, we asked several of our recent guests what they remember about casting their first ballot. Here's Governor John Hickenlooper. And the first time I voted, I was uh, a freshman in college in uh, Middletown, Connecticut, and it was the off-year election, so there wasn't a presidential campaign. And I voted for the mayor's campaign. It was one of those incredible campaigns where the winner won by a handful of votes. I can't remember if it was 10 votes or 12 votes or something like that. And it was just one of those things where democracy was laid in, in bright contrast that your vote matters. You better vote. 
George Brockler is the district attorney for Jefferson County. He says his first vote set him on the path towards becoming a politician. My first time voting was in 1988 in favor of Bush the Elder. It was also an opportunity, though, to vote a little bit down ballot for the congressman for the 6th Congressional District, a guy named Dan Schaefer. I had actually worked on that campaign at the suggestion of one of the other swimmers on the swim team. His mother was Dan Schaefer's campaign manager. And she said, look, if you're interested in West Point and Annapolis, you know, get to in front of him by working with us. working." For and I did. And it was a great experience. And it probably got me started in thinking in terms of how politics are interwoven with all the government stuff that we do. For others, their first ballot fostered a sense of civic responsibility. Edgar Antione co-owns a handgun training company in Denver. He joined us to explain his support for libertarian presidential candidate Gary Johnson. I was actually pretty excited about voting for the very first time. It was in 2004, and I voted for Bush. I do remember going into the polls and being quite proud of myself. That I voted sticker was my claim to fame, if you will, just to tell people that I did participate in the process. It was a pretty special moment at the time. But in some cases, the memory of that first ballot has little to do with politics. What I remember most about that time, quite honestly, being a freshman in college, was a lot of beer and a lot of partying associated with what I should be voting for. That's Reggie Bika. He's now the director of the Colorado Department of Human Services. Probably should have been focused more on my studies at the time and on the election than I was, but it was a great time in life for sure. Scott Levin agrees. He's the director of the Anti-Defamation League for the Rocky Mountain region. He got his first chance to vote in 1976. I was a freshman in college in Washington, D.C., and I was volunteering on both the Gerald Ford campaign and the Jimmy Carter campaign. I didn't have very purist political thoughts at the time, but by volunteering on both campaigns, I got to use long distance for free and can call back to Denver to my girlfriend. We were supposed to be making phone calls to try and recruit people to get out the vote and to um, otherwise get engaged with the campaigns. I did a little of that, too. And I actually did make a choice of which one I was going to vote for. But I didn't see any reason to not take advantage of being able to use the free long distance at both campaign headquarters. It's tough to imagine a teenager today two-timing Clinton and Trump given the animosity of this campaign season. Maggie Bernyarski, the CU freshman who cast her first ballot last week, has been talking to lots of first-time voters. That's because she works for New Era Colorado. The nonpartisan nonprofit encourages young people to get involved with politics. You know, educating people and having them show up to the polls, too, to make a difference, it's, it's really encouraging. And I think that's definitely what I'm going to remember is just conversations. And as the campaign wraps up, we've been asking people what they want the next president to know about their lives. Racism, the high cost of education and health care are some of the responses we got on our answering machine recently. Thanks for calling Colorado Public Radio. As part of the election season, we want to hear what's most important to you. My name is Jessica Pettigrew. I'm calling from Denver. And I'd like the next president to know that I have a three-year-old child and it makes me really sad and angry, knowing that he's going to spend his school life growing up on lockdown for active shooter drills. And I grew up in the era of Columbine, and it makes me really sad that so much time has passed and as a nation, we're unwilling to address this issue. 
My name is Carletta King, and I would like the next president of the United States to know how fearful I am raising two children, two African-American children in this culture in light of what's going on in this election. Unfortunately, what has been revealed is something that we've long known in the black community, and that is the lie that we no longer have a problem with racism and sexism and issues like that in this country. Thanks for calling Colorado Public Radio. What should the next president know about your life? My name is Andrew Burge. I am a veteran of um, Afghanistan. And what I want you to know about my life is that I really want to go to college. Desperately want to. Now, I know through the GI Bill, it is paid for. But living here in Denver, it takes almost half of my paycheck just to pay my rent. So I really can't afford to go to college because I can't afford to not work to pay my bills. My name is Julie Rada, and what should the next president know about my life? Well, for all intents and purposes, I'm pretty privileged. I'm an urban white 36-year-old woman. I have an education, a terminal degree in my field. I've been published. I've received grants and awards for my work. And as of today, all of my bills are paid, all of my obligations are done, and I have 72 cents in my checking account. Recently, this fall, I've deferred medical treatment due to being uninsured until I qualified for Medicaid. I've experienced food scarcity and a number of other challenges. I don't have any family support because every single person in my immediate family is also struggling to pay their bills. Those are responses to our question, what should the next president know about your life? There's more at CPRnews.org. Share your story. Call 720-358-4029 and leave a message. That's 720-358-4029. Up next, they wanted to write a Disney musical, but what they got was something completely different. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. What started as a vision for a Disney-type musical eventually evolved into this. From sad trails and faint tracks, the black stone water is blood on the tongue grass from the arms of slaughter. This land is splintered and the whole kingdom is cracked. The game's laid out crooked and This is Into the Wilderness, off the first album from new Denver band Lost Walks. Over the length of ten tracks, a gothic-like story unfolds in a remote mountainous area. It's called Wolf, Woman, Man, and it's the brainchild of husband and wife team Andy Thomas and Jen Ganun. You can hear the new concept album during its debut performance at Syntax Physic Opera in Denver next Friday. Andy and Jen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This sounds more uh, Tim Burton than Disney Princess. Yeah. Uh, Andy, how'd you go from the idea of writing a musical in the style of Disney to Wolf, Woman, Man? Yeah, I mean, we've been thinking a lot about that, and we wonder where the progression happened because um, we did want it to be a little bit light-hearted to start, and then it just progressed into this very dark, kind of morbid tale. Um, and we realized that's, you know, different parts of our personality is, you know, we are drawn to these light-hearted 
good-natured things, but we also really we listen to a lot of Nick Cave, and we, we like we love Tim Burton, of course. So I, you know, I think it was at first a kind of decision to have a balance between those two, and then somewhere along the line, it just got really, really dark. <laughs> and Jen, the storyline started to come together after a trip to the Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center last year. What, what was it about that visit? Well, so we went after we started writing the songs, and we wanted to get some more information about wolves. Um, and when we were there, we realized that having our wolf portrayed in this um, evil way was not responsible for us anymore. We really wanted to make sure that um, this misunderstood animal was portrayed in the way that we felt was responsible. So he went from being kind of an evil character in our story to more of a hero in the end. And this is a conceptual album. And so there is a story and it has three characters uh, in it. Uh, I want to listen to the first track on the album. It's called Always Been Cold. The smell carries well here from miles the second track. I want right. to <laughs> correct myself yeah, no there. Uh, this is a linear story mm-hmm. about a couple deep in the remote mountains somewhere. And, and, and like I said, just three characters, all sung by different vocalists. Uh, Andy, you call this album a cross between Peter and the Wolf and The Shining. Yeah. What more can you tell me about the story without giving too much of this ending away? Sure, yeah. No, that we thought that was a pretty apt description because it kind of, these, these, at least the man himself literally gets cabin fever. You know, he, he starts to think that there's some really drastic measures that need to be taken uh, in response to his wife that he's kind of trapped in this remote region with, and uh, she, she has a child on the way. So he starts to develop very nefarious uh, schemes uh, and the wolf, yeah, as we mentioned before, eventually is kind of the protagonist in this tale because he discovers this and he wants, you know, to make sure that the woman is safe. So he has some plans of the man in his own right, but again, uh, all on behalf of the woman. And this music is dark. There's, there's no, there's no qualms about that. Mm-hmm. Almost painting these gothic pictures. Do you have to create a very specific environment to write lyrics like this? You know, could you write it, let's say, on a beautiful bluebird day, for example? <laughs> That's a funny question. Uh, We were thinking back to when we first started writing this. And of course, we had this idea for a long time. And then when we actually got a lot of the songs out was when we were snowed in. There was a snowstorm (laughs) probably about two years (laughs) ago. Yeah. We kind of locked ourselves in one of our extra rooms and 
wrote most of it there. So yeah, I don't think it would happen on a sunny beach somewhere. And we, and we did have a foster dog at the time, so the wolf element was there. <laughs> you all three of so. you sitting in the room Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she didn't contribute, but she was there. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with two founding members of the new Denver band Lost Walks, guitarist and singer Andy Thomas and Jen Ganun, who sings and plays the accordion. They joined me to talk about the band's debut release. It's a concept album called Wolf Woman Man. Uh, Lost Walks starts with you two, and uh, there's another member of the band. Who is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the other the other part, the uh, the person who plays the wolf is our friend Damian Merkel, mm-hmm. uh, and he was a large inspiration for the project because we knew when we started to to write this, we just wanted. We always loved Bad Luck City. Uh, Damian and Kelly, another member of our band's old band, um, we just loved the feel that they had. Damian has a very unique voice, so. You know, as we were writing this, we knew the project was pretty much contingent on him because we needed his voice for the wolf. No one else can do that. Yeah. Yeah. And well, the the, the performance now, the, the album, the, the band is much larger now with a bunch right. of different Denver mm-hmm. musicians. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we've since uh, the three of us, Damien, Andy and I were writing it. We then added Kelly, who plays violin. And then we have Trent Nelson, guitar, and David Thomas Bailey, who's playing bass. And then Chad Johnson is our drummer. Um, and then we've also added an entire artistic team to help us with our live shows as well. And you're going to have a, an elaborate setup at the location you're at. Where is that? And, and talk about the how this is going to be set up and how people can view this on stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we've uh, partnered with Insight Productions, and that's our friend uh, Katie Webster and Justin Hicks. And they've been helping local bands for a while kind of flesh out their live show. So they started with uh, our friends in Faceman, and David, our bass player, f- plays in Faceman as well. But they started by building him a megalodon, a huge shark. Oh. And they played inside this megalodon. Um, so it started with that, and it was this amazing idea. So, you know, and Faceman has always said, Steve, the singer of Faceman, just wanted a way, you know, another element to a, a band's live show. And, and locally as a live band, we kind of get locked into just playing and then not having it, you know, a performance element. So Inside has helped with that tremendously. Um, so they're going to build... Um, some kind of these giant stations, kind of in a Catholic church. Uh, one of each will go along with each of the songs. So uh, along with a f- uh, photograph by uh, Alvino Salcedo, who's a friend of ours, and then art from Liz Holland. So using their art, they're creating these giant stations and also kind of trying to create the snowy atmosphere that the story is supposed to take place in. How are they doing that? How are they creating the snowy atmosphere? Just a lot of white paper <laughs> <laughs> or Tyvek, you know, just making sure that, yeah, people can kind of get locked into the scene that we've hopefully created yeah and it's the uh, syntax uh, physic opera mm-hmm. and that's what the location for this is going to be correct yeah uh jen you're also a dancer and choreographer right. uh so what are your hopes for this album down the road uh, do you envision it as a larger theatrical production in the form of a musical or a rock opera absolutely yeah that was part of why we started this was i was using a lot of local music for one of my old dance companies And we were thinking one day we should write our own music so we could eventually put movement to that. So I've gathered some dancers and we're already starting to talk about what movement would look like for this. But yeah, eventually we want to have a huge production with movement and more artwork and and gather more of our friends and artists to work with us on this. I, I'm talking about this album almost like it is a theatrical production. Is there a runtime? Is there an intermission? How does this play on stage? <laughs> well, yes, and that's the thing. You know, we're so steeped, at least me, you know, personally, I'm steeped in the band world. 
So, you know, the way it's always gone for me is you add a couple bands to the bill and then, you know, that's kind of the length of the performance is how many bands you can have. But, you know, because Jan is from the more dance and theatric world, we do eventually want to have it as a full theatrical production. Um, but right now we do have an opener for the show and then we will play, you know, the full album. And we kind of want to make sure that we always tell the entire story every time we play. So it's not a thing where we can open and play a couple select tracks from it we hopefully can want to do the whole story every time so yeah. you know we're still trying to figure out you know what that looks like and the hope is to just try to build upon you know every performance and do something new and unique every time we perform and this is a new band but you all have been playing music with other bands for for years yeah 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 i mean yeah I, i've moved back to denver in 2003 and have been playing in as many bands as i can since then you know and uh and Jen plays in another band with me called uh, Andy Thomas's Dust Heart. Mm-hmm. And Trent and David and Chad and Kelly and Damien have just been around forever, too. So, In a way, it feels like we have kind of our dream team, not just in the band. I mean, they're all wonderful musicians, but also with the artists that are involved with it as well. We're, we're getting everyone's opinion on how we can move forward with this whole project. And it's really pretty amazing. Fairy tales and fables have an embedded lesson or some kind of takeaway. Uh, Jen, what might that be in the case of Wolf, Woman, Man? We are hoping to spark the interest in wolves and anyone who hears this watches watches the whole production. We want people to go down to Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center and, and meet the wolves and take the tours and, and educate themselves a little bit more about what's facing wolves today. Um, so the lesson might be that they're wildly misunderstood animals and they deserve our respect and protection. So maybe that's the lesson there. Why the fascination with wolves? Uh, we are all animal lovers for sure. So that's part of it. Um, so when we went down to the sanctuary, mm-hmm. we were just trying to get some more inspiration for the music and for the songwriting. But then we realized the the laws that are in place now that are hurting the wolf population and and just how they're so demonized in our culture and we're um, we're we're just hoping to help the folks who are helping them so much. So the fascination is just that we respect them and hope that they can get the protection that they need. Yeah, and you know, and as a when you write, you know, when you write a narrative or you write a tale, you want a very complicated, fascinating lead. And so we kind of thought, you know, the wolf as this tragic misunderstood figure was kind of the classic protagonist. So, um, and if we can shed a little light on kind of what's actually happening, you know, in the world with with wolves or any animals, you know, that's a bonus. But uh, at its core, we just wanted a really, you know, like I said, complicated figure to lead it. Will this be the one and only album you will release under the name Lost Walks? You know, we've talked about that. Um, We definitely want to make sure that we give this a good run. We want to make sure this album can live on for as long as it can. But we have such a good group of people and we have such an amazing band that I don't think it's out of the question to think that we could kind of, you know, reimagine another tale um, with kind of different characters. I mean, that's that would be a good ultimate goal for us, I think. I want to go out with one more song. This is Sweet Disaster Laloba.
guitarist and singer Andy Thomas and Jen Ganun, who sings and plays the accordion, they are two of the founding members of the new Denver band Lost Walks. Their debut album is called Wolf, Woman, Man. They release the album next Friday with a performance at Syntax Physic Opera in Denver. And that's our show. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend. Yeah, I'm